0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, once again, welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. Thank you so much for making this a part of your day, and I'll do my best to live up to your expectations. Hopefully they're set reasonably low, but uh, here we go. So... Uh, I'm struggling just a little bit with with some of the new terminology that is that is coming out, and I've been guilty of using this. This is the problem. This is why I struggle with it. Uh, for instance, the the phrase "new normal. You stop and think about what that means, you know is, is, do, do we have a really clearly defined understanding, a concise like legal definition of what is the new normal? I would say eh, probably not. I don't know. Maybe a Mir- Maybe Merriam Webster's put it in the dictionary by now. I-, I don't think they have, though. But my point here is that there are a lot of things coming into our lexicon that uh, become buzzwords, buzz phrases. They become part of our vocabulary. And we're not even sure why we say them. I guess we just they they just kind of come into being or or. And this is the this is the part that I'm, I'm asking you to consider. They are introduced into our lexicon in order to uh, shape how we think and speak of things. Now, I know that everybody and their brother is invoking 1984 about, uh, what, every 30 seconds to describe you know, the current situation that we're in. It really does feel that way sometimes. But we do have a lot of what uh, could rightly be termed newspeak going on around us. And probably one of the best examples that I can think of is there's a new phrase that has started to to come out and become popular in addition to, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of the new normal and social distancing. These are things we, you know, two months ago, if you said social distancing, people would have looked at you like, what the heck is that? Now everybody's talking about it, not only talking about it, but actually enforcing it. So here's one that you're probably starting to hear a little bit about contact contact tracing rather what do you think of that contact tracing and it sounds actually pretty you know ambiguous well okay contact tracing this would be uh, you're keeping up with uh, everybody you've had contact with oh the better to track you know the progression of a disease or a pandemic yes yes this makes sense okay But let's talk about just how Orwellian contact tracing really is. And I'm going to share some stuff with you today that um, may push you to the limits of your comfort zone. It's not my intention to make you upset, but it is my intention to at least get you uh, past that feeling of feeling so comfortable that I really don't even have to think about these sort of things. I'd like you to think about them. Whether you agree or not, that's totally up to you. But these are things we should be considering. Thomas Luongo has a great piece on Lou Rockwell today. Don't trace me, bro. Just say no to contact tracing. And he starts with the question, contact tracing? Really? That's the next big government program to push for the total surveillance over our lives. Now, if you think that's an overreaction, listen to the case that he lays out here. He says, now the real fallout from the Corona apocalypse comes to light. The very people who created a fake pandemic out of faulty statistics, media fear pimping, and the rankest of propaganda are now pushing the total surveillance state to protect us, or he says actually maybe them, from the next crisis. And he has an excellent video linked in here. In fact, I'm going to share a couple of uh, audio excerpts from this video. James Corbett from the Corbett Report, who just published this excellent video discussing contact tracing as promulgated by who else? The Clinton Global Initiative, which will create a new army of brown shirts to assist our wise and benevolent leaders in managing us like livestock. Now, we'll share more of James Corbett's uh, audio here in the next segment, but the bottom line is uh, Thomas Luongo says James is urging us not to use the term contact tracing, and he says, I agree with him. But he says at the same time, the best way to do that is to make fun of it and those who would you know, try to propagate this, this phrase. He says, I propose just looking at them and saying, don't trace me, bro. (laughs) As always, when they want to hurt us toward a terrible idea, they first have to come up with a harmless sounding euphemism for it. Either that or else just call it a war that we're going to fight and win, you know, together for, for kids. Now, he says financial privacy during the Clinton administration was was wrapped in classic phrases like or the, the assault on financial privacy during Clinton's administration was wrapped in classic government phrases like know your customer and anti money laundering. No big surprise, right? Now, those sets of rules which got ramped up after 9-11 dominate the global financial landscape. But let's look at what's happened with COVID-19 step by step. First, a virus shows up in China, which people in the highest levels of our government were briefed about as early as November, if Pepe Escobar's research is to be believed. This is a quote from Pepe Escobar's uh, article. The gold standard remains the ABC News report, according to which Intel collected in November 2019 by the National Center for Medical Intelligence, NCMI, a subsidiary of the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency was already warning about a new virulent contagion getting out of hand in Wuhan based on detailed analysis of intercepted communications and satellite imagery. An unnamed source told ABC analysts concluded it could be a cataclysmic event, adding the intel was briefed multiple times to the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, the Pentagon's Joint Chiefs of Staff, and even the White House, end quote. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of finger pointing and blaming going on, but um, it does appear that uh, this information and possibly the virus was around a lot earlier than we've been led to believe. Thomas Luongo says next China, the gold standard for the Orwellian panopticon, proceeds to use that panopticon to prove to the world how effective government can be in containing a deadly plague. That model, which fundamentally runs counter to billions of years of evolution and basic immunology, is then propagated around the Western world to combat COVID-19, a disease which has a mortality rate similar to the annual flu, to shut down those economies exacerbating a financial crisis already fully underway. This destroys the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It creates economic dislocations that make the Great Depression look like a mild recession. In places like Italy, France, and Spain, where youth unemployment has been in double digits for more than a decade, the lockdown was used as a way to tamp down social unrest, as they were hotbeds for opposition to inept and increasingly fascist governments. In the U.S., a country ruled by old, ideologically possessed, and corrupt boomers, who've been in a heightened state of fear since Donald Trump was elected, saw the opportunity to create the worst possible outcome in places like New York and California. Governors in blue states seized power they didn't legally have and cried for help they didn't need. And the confusion and disinformation about the virus created so much fear, people willingly huddled in their homes, hoping the angel of death passed them by with nothing more to do than be glued to the death counter in a desperate bid to stay informed about the science. But as Thomas Luongo points out here, there weren't two million dead in the U.S. There's around fifty thousand, and those death statistics are very spe- statistics rather are very specious, since the people reporting them have motive, means, and opportunity to inflate them to get federal aid, advance their political agendas now on full display, and cover their asses. So now contact tracing, which is just a euphemism for total surveillance. But they're admitting they can't do it themselves. They need help. And this is the really Orwellian part of it. Totalitarian governments uh, like the UK say they'll have an app in a couple of weeks. Here's a quote from an article. Matthew Gould also disclosed plans to log the location of whenever two or more people are in close proximity for minutes at a time. That will disturb privacy campaigners. You think? Mr. Gould told the Science and Technology Committee the app would be technically ready for deployment in two or three weeks, but made it clear it was only one part of the strategy, strategy rather to emerge from the lockdown and would involve a none-too-subtle marketing campaign. If you want to protect the NHS and stop it from being overwhelmed and at the same time want to get the economy moving, then the app is going to be a part of an essential part of a strategy for doing that, he said. End quote. Really, an app. That goes on our smartphones, which go with us pretty much everywhere we go. No, what could possibly go wrong with that? I mean, it's like, you know, having Big Brother right there in your pocket. Now, Thomas Luongo points out China already has this. All across the enlightened West, countries will now recruit tens of thousands of, quote, contact tracers to go out and build their network for them. And you're going to hear Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo and Bill Clinton in in the, some of the cuts of these videos, at least you'll hear uh, Gavin Newsom and Bill Clinton discussing this. This is from uh, from John Corbett's or James Corbett's uh, video. And since there are now tens of millions of people out of work, desperate for any sort of job, finding recruits for this will be easy. So Tom Luongo says, see how this works? First, you destroy people's lives. Then you print trillions in funny money to bail out the inept and continue paying the enforcers, ensuring they're fed. And then when desperation reaches its peak, you create a new government program and turn people into snitches to ensure compliance. We're going to empower the worst busybodies who are already insane with fear to run around collecting data for the government. All in the name of getting the economy back up and running. Now, we'll come back we'll come back to this in just a couple of moments. But can you imagine the potential for abuse that such a system would entail? This is Loving Liberty. We'll be right back. just like that, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you an article from Thomas Luongo. Don't trace me, bro. Just say no to contact tracing. If you haven't heard this phrase before, trust me, you're going to be hearing more and more about it. Why? Because as we reopen the economy slowly and only according to official dictates, this is going to be one of the key components about whether or not, you know, we're able to do it safely and according to plan. Why? Well, because the central planners have uh, have got to keep track of people. And if someone has tested positive for covid-19, they want to know who they've had contact with, where they've been, et etc. Et this means there will very likely be a new app which you'll be voluntarily asked to put on your smartphone, you know, to, to help better fight the virus. It also means that a great number of people are likely to be employed in the cause of snitching. I'm sorry, contact tracing, (laughs) keeping track of you and anybody else who uh, may have, uh, you know, illicit contact with a person or illicit social distancing tendencies. Holy cow. If you thought the Karens were empowered before, just wait till this catches on. Thomas Luongo says, I'm pretty sure when I read the Scarlet Letter in high school, we didn't consider Hester Prynne to be the bad guy because the person who is COVID-19 positive will now have a big red CV on them, which will limit their ability to partake in society. The next stage will be to force them to lock themselves down in isolation or face the depredations of the state. And even if we begin to ignore such insanity, the next step will be to look the other way when the contact tracers become belligerent. This is about keeping everyone in a heightened state of fear at all times. The Karens will be worried about a stupid germ and everybody else will be worried about what the Karens will do. Because what good is this app if it doesn't report you to the authorities who know where you are? So the solution to a virus and the incompetence of our governments is to turn busybodies into brown shirts and COVID positives into social pariahs. Now, just a quick reminder for you, just in case you've forgotten, you know, when you don't pay a parking ticket, what happens Eventually, your license gets suspended, then your car insurance gets canceled. If you don't turn your tag in for not having insurance, then you risk jail time when you get stopped by the police. They can arrest you for driving on a suspended license, impound your car, the entire ordeal becomes a bureaucratic nightmare. Moral of the story, pay your parking ticket, obviously. But not because you were a bad person or even committed a heinous crime, but because you broke the rules. And if you don't follow the state's rules, no matter how petty, no matter how asinine, you will be punished to the full extent of the law. So do you really think this contact tracing system won't end up in the same kind of hell? Now you're a documented threat to other people's lives. You're an evil spreader, man. Think of the children. The state is only good at two things, says Thomas Luongo, killing people and creating perverse incentives. And if this isn't a case of creating the perverse incentive of destroying civilization in order to save it, he says that I don't know what is. The system is failing before our eyes. It's a system born of corrupt money, begetting even greater institutional corruption. And he says they wouldn't be pushing for this total surveillance if they weren't uniquely paranoid about our readiness to throw them overboard. They want us snitching on each other and suspect of each other. It's the most pernicious form of social control ever devised to distrust basic human contact and interaction because there are germs in the world. He says it's time to end the mass hallucination that we've never dealt with something like this before. The mass branding of this COVID-19 as the plague is laughable. The push for global surveillance is pathetic. He says, unfortunately we live in a world today where the fearful are empowered by the powerful to mob the non-compliant. Wow. Is that ever true? COVID-19 isn't the plague, folks, says Thomas Luongo. If you think it's the crisis you should be fearful of, I suggest you th- seek therapy, not the false security of a government tracking app. Which brings us to James Corbett. Let's let's uh, share a couple bits of uh, information from him. Stop calling it contact tracing. This is what James Corbett had to say in a video posted on his website.
1: Stop me if you've heard this one at all in the past few weeks. Contact tracing I'm willing to bet you have heard about contact tracing in the past few weeks. I'm also willing to bet it is a term that you have never heard before in your life prior to the last few weeks. Something to cogitate on, and I have a remarkably profound but remarkably simple observation about that coming up for you. But for those who have somehow managed to miss this term, contact tracing, and its definition, well... Why take it from me? Let's take it from the Clinton Global Initiative.
2: One of the elements, key elements, in your plan to be able to reopen California, and I liked it, by the way, because you didn't overpromise. You didn't promise you could do things you couldn't, and you made it clear that unless you could do it without more people getting sick and dying, it couldn't be done. But one of the things that you have to be able to do is to track people who are positive. Where were they? Who were they in contact with? How can you hem up any recurrence of this? Uh, Massachusetts has recently announced that they're gonna try to build a statewide tracking program and they've asked partners in health to run it for them. they're one of my partners in the work we run in Africa, Haiti, and other places. But where are we going to get all these contact tracers? Uh, should we have, like should, like you did with uh, California, did with the Conservation Corps of Young People, should we have a contract tracer corps, even if we call it something more elegant? Should we... Yeah really build the first public health network we've ever really built in this country around this issue
3: uh, I think the answer is absolutely yes, and, and I, I love the Massachusetts example. We were able to learn uh, from them. We're all sharing best practices in real time. Uh, but this is an interesting point that's often not brought up. Uh, we have tracing capacity that predates COVID-19. that goes back to SARS, measles, TB, uh, et cetera, tracking and tracing capacity that exists in the county levels primarily uh, and increasing capacity at the state level. So what we're doing is we're building off that existing infrastructure and using the tools of technology to overlay. In addition to that, we're using AmeriCorps specifically. I thank you as a champion for AmeriCorps uh, for decades. Uh, We've been able to take advantage of that workforce. Obviously, our conservation uh, core, what we have now is called Cal Volunteers in the spirit of Sarge Shriver. Uh, we are asking people, thousands of folks, to be part of this new core, to get trained and to help us with the tracing, because you're absolutely right. The predicate for getting back to some semblance of normalcy is our ability to identify individuals through testing, to be able to trace their contacts to isolate individuals uh, that have uh, either uh, been exposed or quarantine people that are tested positive. And that's just gonna require an army of folks and the capacity of consideration from individuals to allow uh, for their privacy uh, to be impacted by that kind of acuity of attention based upon where they've been and who they talk to.
1: Oh, yes contact tracing. Is that what they're calling it now? Because it seems to me that this is the nightmare panopticon total surveillance grid that crazy conspiracy theorists have been warning about the creation of for decades now. But no, no, you silly conspiracy theorists, you were completely wrong. That never existed and you were crazy and paranoid for even caring about it. But, oh, here it is. And it's now called contact tracing. <laughs> you, you see how this works. This leads to a remarkably profound and remarkably simple observation about propaganda. Propaganda
0: is PR. Wow, that is so dead on. And, and again, this is stuff that's just, with all the things we have to focus on, I'm guessing that this probably has slipped under the radar of many of us. But watch for it. When you see phrases like contact tracing, understand this is not so much about we're just trying to keep you safe so much as we are trying to get the apparatus erected and get everything in place to make sure that the government can tell who you are with, where you are, how long you have been there. Every moment of every day with your voluntary help. Why? Because I'm doing my part to fight COVID-19. Be careful. There's a bargain in there somewhere, but I'm pretty sure it's a Faustian bargain at best. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. So I shared with you this article by Thomas Luongo. I'll have a link to it in the show notes and also the uh, video from James Corbett. It's about 17 minutes long. Very, very worthwhile. I have only recently kind of stumbled across James Corbett. And the guy's a pretty interesting source of information. I would recommend see what he has to say. and, And then you can judge for yourself, you know, whether you can hang your hat on it or not. He makes a whole lot of sense to me. And I like to to get his take, by the way, he did have a very interesting take on, um, you know, if you want to keep it straight in your head when it comes to the whole contact tracing thing, maybe the best thing to do would be to go ahead and substitute to a more accurate term for for what is going on. Here's here's how James Corbett explains it.
1: I think why not use something that we all can understand as creepy Orwellian, you know, total police state surveillance grid? Why don't we call it, say, instead of contact tracing, why not call it Big Brother surveillance or something along those lines? Or just say Big Brother. Just refuse to say contact tracing and just replace it with Big Brother. So, for example, if we were to re engineer the contact tracing conversations that the Clinton Global Initiative is hosting with more accurate language inserted, it might sound something like this. We need big brother agents in the hundreds and hundreds of people, right? You take the test and then you big brother back all the contacts. It's never been done on this scale before. This is an army of big brothers to basically
2: investigators. But we need a national core of healthy people who are properly trying to go out and do this big brother. We need the bodies. And it seemed to us as though no sort of systematic or um, concerted efforts around. Big Brother. were taking place in Massachusetts, so. Massachusetts has recently announced that they're going to try to build a statewide Big Brother. program, And they've asked partners in health to run it for them. And they're one of my partners in the work we run in Africa, Haiti, and other places. But where are we going to get all these?
1: Big Brother's.
2: Uh, should we have, like, should like you did with uh, California did with the Conservation Corps of young people? Should we have a Big Brother Corps, even if we call it something more <laughs> elegant?
0: You get the picture. <sighs> This is this has been the most fascinating thing that I have noticed over many years of of actually trying to pay attention to what uh, official people are doing, you know, in in uh, the halls of government and in positions of authority and something that uh, I'm not the only one who's observed this. I'm sure you've seen this as well. There's always this this tendency to name things in the way this is how we want it to be perceived when it's the exact opposite and James Corbett gives a couple of great examples of this the war of terror what don't you mean the war on terror no that's it's it's we call it the war on terror at least that's what we're told to call it but what does it really consist of well drone strikes on you know people who you know may or may not have anything to do with terror whatsoever but somehow ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, the patriot act How patriotic is it? So patriotic that government will be your constant companion in everything you do and say. Yeah. Anyway, keep your head on a swivel, as as our friends in the military or law enforcement would say. Be aware of what's going on around you. And for heaven's sakes, don't buy into the PR, the propaganda that uh, we're just looking out for each other. When in reality, we're being encouraged to, to snitch on each other and track one another and and socially enforce whatever those who wish to rule us want to have enforced. I'm going to shift gears here. There's a, there's a great article from the Bionic Mosquito. And the, the headline caught my attention because the headline is a world without Christianity. Followed by the sub is a world without the possibility of of liberty. Now the article specifically refers to a book called Dominion: How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's by Tom Holland, and the author says at some point I will read this book and write something about it. He says I've heard enough from Tom Holland that uh, in the interviews that the book seems very worthwhile, and the, this article that I'm reading here is based on one of those interviews conducted by Glenn Scrivener. Uh, Glenn Scrivener is an ordained minister, and evangelist, and there are some really interesting points made in this interview about how without Christianity, liberty would not exist or would not be feasible in the long term. Here's a quote from the interview. Glenn Scrivener says, There are many humanists who say Christianity played a part in Western liberal values, but even without Jesus Christ, we would have got to where we are. To which Tom Holland chuckles and says no, and it's so odd because it tends to be people who vi- who valorize science and Darwin and the theory of evolution prior to Christianity. There is nothing at all about the emergence of the qualities or the values or the teachings of Christianity at all. End quote. Now the bionic mosquito says, I don't recall if it was earlier in the interview or another interview with Holland, but Holland describes the Roman world into which Christianity was born. Anyone, not a male Roman citizen, demanding any sort of rights would be sent to death. Any male Roman citizen had the right to have sex with anyone of any age in any orifice of his choosing. Things like this. And the worst part, all of this was considered right and good. It was only in Christianity where the slaves were given equal dignity in God's eyes, where women had the same rights in marriage and sex as men. Again, Glenn Scrivener speaking with Thomas Holland. You cannot get these from other sources. Thomas Holland says, if you want a sense of what the world might have looked like without Christianity, you can look at India, where you have a very rich philosophical tradition, a very rich tradition of worshiping gods. You don't have something that emerges and wipes that out. And the bionic mosquito points out, certainly Christian-like values did not emerge from India. Tom Holland says, I can absolutely imagine a world where Christianity doesn't emerge where what uh, the Jewish scriptures offer to Gentiles remains highly appealing. So there's a kind of churn of conversion. But because the difficulty of becoming a Jew is such, it could never become universalist on the scale that Christianity does. The bionic mosquito points out it didn't before Christ. There's no reason at all that it would have been different after Christ. Clint Scrivener says, could we though have generated some sort of human rights absent Christianity? To which Tom Holland says, I don't see why you would. Why would you? The idea that human rights kind of hangs in the ether waiting to be discovered is as theological as believing that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and sits sits at the hand of God the Father. It requires a leap of faith. Now, the bionic mosquito says it's interesting. We consider that natural rights hang in the ether waiting to be discovered. And this is true enough. But I think it's only true enough if one first accepts that man is made in God's image and that God in Jesus gave us the means by which to understand proper virtues. Tom Holland says the difference is that Christians recognize the divinity of Christ requires belief, whereas lots of people just assume that human rights exist, but they do not. They are a result of various legal developments in medieval Christendom. It doesn't just spontaneously emerge. The bionic mosquito says prior to and outside of Christianity, societies didn't thrive by practicing what we today consider proper, i.e. Christian ethics. They survived via violence and brute force. Thomas Holland said the idea that humanists propagate that science proves the value of liberal values is grotesque. Science is a mirror in which you see reflected what you want to see. The Nazis used science to justify racial genocide. Liberals use it to justify, let's hug the world. But both of them reflect the cultural prejudices of people who are looking in that mirror of science. Holland then describes his view of the fall from Christianity, which he says happened as a result of the two world wars and the people realizing the evils of the Holocaust. I will only say that the fall happened long before and Nietzsche's madman saw this. Holland even references Nietzsche's death of God. So he says, I don't follow his thinking here at all. He continues. Thomas Holland says, we no longer needed the devil because we had Hitler. We no longer needed hell because we had Auschwitz. So whatever people, whenever people want to do what's right, what is good, they can look at the, uh, at the Nazis and just do the opposite of what the Nazis did. The worst insult you can ever give anyone is that they are a racist or a Nazi. He says this kind of modern liberal thinking sucked everyone in universities, politicians and churches. Therefore, the church no longer determines what people think, whereas humanism is a kind of Christian heresy. Humanism has become so hegemonic that it has made the church kind of humanist. This is why church attendance in the West is shrinking. Who needs the church when all they have to do is regurgitate what's offered everywhere else? Glenn Scrivener says, so what would you like to see Christians preach? And Thomas Holland says, well, I see no point in bishops, preachers or evangelists just recycling the kind of stuff that you can get from any kind of soft left liberal because everyone's doing that. If I want that, I'll get it from a liberal democratic counselor. Now, there's more to this. We'll finish it up here in the final segment of this hour. A world without Christianity is a world in which liberty is not possible. That's going to rub some people the wrong way, including some of my dearest friends on the side of liberty. But I think this is a concept worth considering. We'll jump back to it just the other side of these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you this article from the Bionic Mosquito. A world without Christianity is a world in which liberty is not possible. And they're, they're citing an interview here uh, between Tom Holland, author of Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, and Glenn Scrivener, an ordained minister and evangelist. And I don't know if you buy into the notion that uh, well, without Christianity, you know, we, we would never have had uh, the uh, I don't know the the Reformation Reformation rather the Renaissance the Enlightenment and so forth. Some, by the way, make the case that the Enlightenment actually was was where Christianity fell, and that's that's where the beginning of the end you know started and and the departure toward a more humanist point of view. I don't know. I can see I can see points on both sides here. But uh, before I go any further with this article, I'll just go ahead and say on the record, I do believe that where the spirit of God is, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And I think it it comes down to, um, in in my opinion, no one more than the Savior, Jesus Christ, made clear the value, the incredible intrinsic value and worth of the individual. You remember the the parable of the 90 and nine. It is the individual that matters, and and the the idea that God loves His children at an individual level, not just as some massive. Oh yes, my children, they're all great, but very individually. That's why those individual rights matter, without which there can be no liberty. Going back here to the article uh, again, there are a couple of different uh, quotes here about uh, well, you know, why why don't uh, Christians uh, why don't Christians Preach, You know, what, what the church used to preach? Why is church attendance shrinking? And the answer is, uh, I see no point in bishops, teachers, or evangelists just recycling the kind of stuff you can get from any semi-soft liberal because everyone's doing that. If I want that, I'll just get it from a liberal democratic counselor. And then Thomas Holland describes the incomprehensible truth of Christianity. Check this out. He says, if you are a Christian, you think that the entire fabric of the cosmos was ruptured by this strange singularity where someone who is God and man sets everything on its head to say it's supernatural is to downplay it. If you believe that you should be itch, then it should be possible to dwell on all the other weird stuff that becomes part of the Christian package. Now, the bionic re- mosquito says really no one else is offering this. It sounds like a pretty good product differentiation strategy. Thomas Holland says, I don't want to hear what the bishops think about Brexit. I want to know what they, I I know what they think about Brexit, he says, and it's not very interesting. Now, if they've got views on original sin, I would be very interested to hear that. Original sin is a perfect example. If you are a woke liberal, you think how awful, how terrible, Augustine was a terrible guy. But watching the kind of shrillness of people convinced of their own virtue, howling down sinners, do you realize that the concept of original sin keeps us all honest? We are all sinners. Alexander Solzhenitsyn would write that the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart, every single one. In other words, as far as original sin, the bionic mosquito says we're all depraved. Thomas Holland says, without original sin, you get a horrible hierarchy of virtue. You get exactly what atheists tend to criticize Christianity for. Christians always have a sense of their own sin. It keeps them honest. And this is what we see around us today. The hierarchy of virtue is upside down. The greater the evil and more depraved, the higher up the ladder it goes. Think about that for a second. As it applies to... People in very powerful positions, both elected or unelected throughout the world. I know that there's a lot of different conspiracy theories about, you know, the the uh, blood and spirit cooking and all the the satanic sacrifices and stuff that uh, the, the high leaders in the world, you know, banking and and politics, you know, may be engaged in. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that the people that I see at the very highest levels put, for instance, of political life tend to be the people who will do anything, say anything in order to consolidate and maintain their power. And because of that, there is no real there, there appears to be no effective moral check on what they're doing. People say sometimes, well, you know, you can't get so caught up in religion. It'll just pervert things. It'll make things, you know, it'll make it easy to exploit people because of their religious beliefs. It certainly has been done within history, but the one advantage that religion has over government is it relies on persuasion rather than force. You can't march a person at gunpoint into the baptismal font and, you know, make them join your church. It's something they have to choose at some level. They have to choose to submit to God. And those who do submit their lives to God do so with a a passion and with a zealousness that they would be willing to forfeit their lives for what they believe is right. Now you have people who would do the same for politics, but politics, unlike God doesn't want you to have the choice in the matter. It's all about compulsion and force, which is that's the one thing that politics always brings to the table is force. I guess that's one of the reasons I have such a distaste for it at this point in my life. Without religion. And I'm going to say specifically without Christianity, There is no competing moral authority to whomever is in power at the moment. And that's when you get governments that do the things that Hitler's government did, that Stalin's government did, that Mao's government did, and a host of others, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Castro, and so on and so on. When there is no competing moral authority, the state becomes the moral authority. So I I, I do agree with the conclusion here. Liberty is not possible in a world where there is not that. I'll, I'll expand it to the Judeo-Christian ethic of right and wrong. Sorry, that got a little heavier than I thought, but I, I appreciate you bearing with me. I thought it was a message worth sharing. Maybe, maybe it'll do you, some, you know, give you some strength or give you some encouragement where you need it. If not, feel free to move on from it. I'm going to move on now. One quick note here. I've been talking a little bit about disruptions or possible disruptions in the food supply chain. And there's a great article I'm going to link in the show notes. I would encourage you to take a look at this. Few things are scarier than the thought of being hungry. And most of us really haven't experienced hunger in any meaningful way, you know, in our lives. Probably the closest I think I've I've seen it, and I, I can't say that I've experienced it myself. But I've seen people who, uh, for instance, maybe had a medical condition, and were told, "Okay, you have to fast, or you cannot take any kind of solid food for the next ten days." So they were either reduced to just like a liquid diet, or maybe Jello, or something like that. Every person I know who's ever been on that kind of a diet says, "I have this understanding of hunger that I did not have before." about what a, what a powerful and miserable force it is in the lives of those people who, uh, for whom it's a, it's a daily thing around the world. Their empathy towards those who struggle with hunger is, uh, is greatly enhanced because they've actually experienced it. Like I say, I haven't, clearly, if you've seen my waistline, I, I haven't missed a meal in ages. Most of us haven't. And so the thought of, uh, well, our food supply chain being interrupted is something we just can't really get our minds around. At the same time, being prepared, you know, putting up a year's supply of food just seems overwhelming. There are a lot of folks that would almost melt down in a puddle of sweat, just the thought of how do you do this? How can you do this? Well, this article from Off the Grid News, How to Ration a Limited Supply of Food, should give you some hope because you don't have to get super fancy It says even if you do your best to prepare for the worst, sometimes things just go wrong. There might be a natural disaster in which you lose all of your canned goods or stuff could actually hit the fan, leaving you with limited resources for replenishing your food supply. But whatever the reason, if you don't have much food to make it through an emergency or season, it's a good idea to know how to ration what you have. Now, of course, this process will vary based on how many people you're feeding, how long you need to feed them. But with a little bit of math and a little bit of willpower, your family survival could weather even extreme situations. So it explains, first of all, how to sit down and determine how much you actually have. Gather it all together, create an inventory, group it into categories, determine which foods need to be eaten first and which will keep till the very end. You're going to be looking at perishable fruits and vegetables, dairy products, meat or other perishable proteins, canned, cured and dried goods, grains and pasta, baking and cooking supplies, as well as miscellaneous foods. And you want to know how much you have of each. Once you know clearly what you have, then you can see how fast you're consuming what you have. And you need to keep a list, in other words, and update it. You need to know how many people you're rationing for. How much food will each person need? Now, they have some bare minimum calorie intake guidelines for the average person. It's, you know, if you have teenagers, good luck. You're going to need it. You need to determine how long it's going to last. But if you do this, you can have at least an idea of where you stand, where you need to bolster your preparations if you need to bolster them. Maybe even where you have a little extra to help the people around you, which I strongly recommend. If you have the capability of setting aside food to do that, do it. Somehow, going to sleep with a full stomach isn't going to be that great if you know your neighbor's kid is starving. This is Loving Liberty. Hour 2 is on the way right after this.